Hey, what's up? It's MJ. Want to snag a $100 Napa cab for $25? Wine Spies finds incredible wines at ridiculous prices. We're talking Zinfandel, Barolo, Champagne, you name it. Some of these wines are up to 75% off. It's not a club, so there's no obligation to buy. They even have a build a case option so you can mix and match wines and take advantage of free shipping on every purchase. Make sure you keep an eye out for their daily offer because once a wine sells out, there's no guarantee it'll be back. Go ahead and check them out. You'll even get a discount by going to winespies.com forward slash black wine guy. Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a black wine guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey, hey, what's up, everybody? It's your boy, MJ. Welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is German wine lover, enthusiast, and and he's a damn expert because he's been doing this for so long. Uh, he's also an avid vinyl fanatic and best known on Instagram by his handle, Soil Pimp, Robert Dentice. Robert was born and raised in Buffalo, New York, and currently lives in New York City. Uh, by day, he works in finance, uh, specializing in biotech companies. Uh, when he's not toiling away during the day, financing mergers and acquisitions and changing the world through biotech, he can frequently be found with his lifelong partner, Renee Patronic, visiting the world's greatest vineyards and winemakers, especially in his beloved region of choice, Germany. Uh, he is an avid record collector that is deep in Spanish, Spanish. African, Brazilian, hip-hop, jazz, and soul, and includes many emerging artists. And his wine collection is primarily focused on Germany. Um, I read it's somewhere between 90 to 95% German wines, and it probably is easily one of the largest and deepest collections of German wines in the United States. Uh, Robert also formed Source Material with his longtime friend and cult German wine importer, Stefan Bitteroff founder of Von Boden and Riesling Fire. Source Material is a curated wine service focused exclusively on German wine intended to leverage their knowledge of German wines and their long-time relationships that they have formed over the years in Germany. Welcome, Robert. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Thank you, MJ. Just very happy to be here and very excited to talk about my passion of German wine, and I'm sure we'll get into some of my other passions along the way as well. So thank you for having me. Oh, man, thank you so much for being here. Like so many of my guests, Robert and I connected through Instagram. Um, the DM has worked well for me. Um, uh, just thank you for responding. I'm sure you probably get hit up by a lot of people just because of uh, your feed, which is phenomenal, you know, between, between the wine and then the music. And uh, I mean, um, you know, and just you you do this you do this at a high level like you're a guy who does things at a high level so thank you for taking the time to come here i'm just as excited as you uh tell everybody what what you brought what we're going to be drinking tonight 
So I've brought three wines today. Um, the first one is uh, a Weingut Hoof. Um, it's von Ruttligieden. Uh, it's a very special wine to me. So Stephen and I started a company called Source Material. And for our second offering, Klaus Peter Keller, who is arguably uh, one of the greatest producers of wine in the world and certainly within Germany, he offered to do a curated selection of five producers that were not currently imported, all of whom uh, either worked for him directly at one point in time or he was mentoring. He's a wonderful uh, person who mentors a lot of young winemakers, and he selected this wine. Uh, the winemaker, her name is Christine Huff. Um, like a lot of wineries in Germany, she went to Geisenheim, came back to the family domain after spending some time working with Klaus Peter Keller, and she's taken the reins, and she's making just beautiful wines. And this was our second release. The first one was Emmerich Schoenlieber, who needs no introduction. Uh, but the most wonderful thing about this wine and all the others is I've gotten so many, you know, great uh, DMs, texts from friends, calls from friends saying, wow, these wines are incredible. I, I can't believe it. Not surprised with you and Steven involved. But this is one, you know, that has really captured the attention of a lot of people. And I think it says a lot about where Germany is today, where you have a young producer like this, goes to university, trains at a top winery, goes back to the family domain, takes it over, and is making incredible wine. And honestly, they're not imported to the U.S. I would say Germany uh, is the only region where, in my opinion, there are a lot of top winemakers who are not imported to the U.S. If you think about Burgundy, it's small. Uh, there's a lot of great Burgundy importers who are constantly in the region uh, when we're not in a pandemic, and everyone is constantly looking for any new domain to add to their portfolio. Germany is so deep. There are so many wineries, and we'll taste this, um, you know, that are making high-quality wines and that are continuing to get better and better, and they're mentored by people like Klaus-Peter Keller that are not imported. So that was one of the many reasons why uh, Stephen and I, you know, came together to form Source Material. I love it. Shall love we it. Uh, taste it? Let's pour some wine, man. Definitely. Um, and while you're doing that, let's let's talk about. Let's start with. Um, let's start with your IG handle, Soil Pimp. Well, um, I mean, you have over eighteen thousand followers, um, so it's definitely working for you. How'd you come up with that name? It's a great story, one I like to tell. Um, so there's a Japanese funk band called Soil and Pimp Sessions. They've been around for a while. Um, Giles Peterson plays them a lot. Giles Peterson is one of my favorite DJs. He is someone who, uh, you know, pre-Spotify, I would learn more about music than anyone because, you know, working all day long in finance, it's really hard to stay up to date. So religiously, every Saturday, I'd watch Giles. He played this band, Soil and Pimp Sessions. And when I heard it, I'm like, Soil Pimp, that's terroir. I mean, when you talk about what a winemaker does, he is pimping the soil. And without a lot of thought, when I signed up for Instagram, uh, I didn't want to put my name on it, you know, for a lot of different reasons. Um, so I'm like, okay, soil pimp. So I threw it up and it's taken on a life of its own. Um, I went to a Freddie Gibbs concert in LA, was walking through the crowd. Everyone was screaming, soil pimp, Riesling study, <laughs> Riesling study. A friend of mine who is a Japanese uh, singer was on tour in Japan, and she ran into the band, 
told them the story. They actually sent a promo copy of their last record with an inscription to me. Um, I've never met them, but because I'm a music geek and, you know, we traffic in similar circles, I get, you know, mixed up with them a lot on Instagram. They can have it if they ever wanted it. I would be more than happy to give it to them. Uh, I'm not going to offer it up, but if they call me, they could have it. It's just taking a life of its own on and, you know, I get told all the time, what a great name. How did you think about it? And it really was a split second. I had remembered this band name. It made me think of wine and terroir. And so I threw it up on Instagram and here we are. Dude, I, that's a great fucking story. And and I don't think they're going to, you know, I don't think they, they, they probably love that you do that, man. They're not, they're not American. <laughs> Very <laughs> they're not, true. They're not going to exceed you the cease and desist, right? And try and steal your followers like some of them do. And they're, they're very cool guys. Their new album, which just came out this year, is incredible. They do a Black Sabbath slowed down jazz cover that's so deep. So check out uh, Soil and Pimp Sessions, their new album, and particularly the, the Black Sabbath cover. I'm on it, man, because I, I I have a I have a small vinyl collection and a small wine collection compared to yours, but I'm definitely checking them out because that's kind of like my thing. I love that. That is such a great just, story. Just be careful. Don't get them too close to each other because I notice they both grow the closer they get to each other. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, I will get that a little bit later because I read an article about you. Like that's like kind of what happened with me. Like my wife bought me like. A, a, like a close and play record player for Christmas one year and then I started buying records and I had and then the next day I was buying better uh, turntables and better components and like she's like oh my god why do you have so many records I'm like that's kind of what I do once I get gold on something so I totally feel you so how does you grew up in Buffalo New York Buffalo is like it's a tough like probably growing up I assume it was a tough place it's a you know it's, it's a gritty city um How's a kid from Buffalo end up obsessed with German wine and amassing the collection you have? So, firstly, um, it brought me to New York. And one thing you learn in Buffalo is a, a very, very strong work ethic, yeah. um, which I had, which allowed me to get to where I am today. Um, I actually moved to New York wanting to work in the music industry. And when I realized, one, what those jobs actually were at the entry level and how much they paid, and uh, frankly, I couldn't get a job. You know, I ended up working in finance, worked really hard, started going out to nicer restaurants. So, wanted to take uh, you know my wife out to uh, a nice restaurant early on in our uh, time in New York. So, we went to the original Boulet, the really small one. I, I still remember it like it was yesterday when I walked in, and the entire uh, entranceway was an arch was filled with fresh apples. Mm. It was the best meal, you know, that I'd ever had to that point in my life. So I became, you know, very interested in food and really reading and studying about food and restaurants, which led to wine. And then, you know, I got very passionate uh, about learning about wine. You know, initially I started in California because it's very easy to, to learn. And I was able to, you know, make trips out to California. But luckily, very early on in my wine exploration, I discovered Austrian wine. And at the time, we're talking about late 90s, early 2000s, dry wine was not that available in the U.S. from Germany. It was really Austria. And I really, really gravitated towards uh, Austrian wine. Uh, and then I started getting into German wine. And then over time, uh, the German winemakers started focusing more and more on dry. They became more available uh, in the U.S., and then I just eventually switched over to Germany for a lot of reasons, which I can go into in, you know, lots of detail if you would like. Yeah, I mean, so, like, um, 
And th that late 90s, that was kind of when Gruner started becoming big. Absolutely. In the U.S. So you were, I assume you were, there's probably, pri I mean, there's obviously other grapes, but it's probably primarily Gruner initially when you were drinking Austrian. Gruner so. and Riesling, and because I'm a, you know, person who likes to dig in and really learn, uh, I went in on everything. Neuberger, um, Weisbergunder, Rotorveltlinger, Gruner. Um, it saddens me today that, you know, the group of, you know, the current, you know, group of wine professionals really don't have the same level of respect that those did, you know, back in the, the 90s. I mean, anytime I ever went to a party with a bunch of Psalms or wine people, you know, half the wines there were Gruner's. Now you're lucky, you know, if there's one, and it's probably going to be a natural skin. I was saying, I was saying, there's a shit ton of natural wines at those tasting yeah. days. <laughs> I mean, Gruner's are great, great, great. Um, Austria, you know, still is making great wines, but I think they've lost their, uh, their voice in the U.S. Um, you know, Stephen Bitteroff, who's my partner, in source material, um, you know, he was the biggest champion of Austrian wine when he was the Austrian and German wine buyer at Crush. And that's how we met. You know, we bonded over our love of Austrian wine, which then spilled over into German wine. And you know, now I focus exclusively on Germany. Um, one, I absolutely just love the wines. Um, I love acid. I love aromatics. I love tension in wine. And I like lower alcohol wines. And that, you know, is pretty much what German wine is. But a couple of the other things I like about it, too, um, as somebody who likes to work hard, research, learn everything, you know, somewhat of a completist, I realized early on that I couldn't do that in Burgundy. You know, I've yeah, been no, lucky enough sure. to, you know, taste the greatest Burgundy wines, but I can't have the collection that I have in Germany in Burgundy. It just wouldn't be possible. So in addition to loving the wines, I like the fact that I could have you know, a collection that I felt, you know, was representative of all of Germany. We're going to taste one of the greatest German wines ever made today. It would be the equivalent of a DRC Malerche, Um But sure. I can bring it here and pour it for you. Um, well, thank so you. <laughs> one, one of the, you know, multitude of reasons why I love German wine, including just loving, you know, the people who make these wines and, you know, loving how they approach it. Yeah. So, like, when was your first trip to Germany? When was the first time you went there? Um, first time I went to Germany was definitely Berlin. Um, and I was kind of surprised, actually, that there wasn't as much German wine available in Berlin as I thought. I thought I was going to be, you know, in German wine heaven. But there, um, it's very narrow and niche. Some of the better restaurants have it. But even the better restaurants focus a little bit more on Burgundy, it's very much a beer culture. Mm -hmm. So I've been visiting vineyards in Germany for, you know, seven, ten years now. I've gone, you know, multiple times, um, dying to go back. The second that they open up, I, I'm going to go. One of the, you know, frustrating things about uh, starting source material uh, in 2020 is we haven't been able to go and visit and taste a lot of mm -hmm. the wines that, um, you know, we are working with. For example, you know, Christine Huff, I've never met her, you know. We relied solely on Klaus Peter Keller, which is not a hard thing to do. Um, but I would love to go and meet them. We did a wonderful um, Zoom happy hour where we took five of the growers who were part of that, what we called the golden generation, the five growers that Klaus Peter selected. And we had each of them talk about their domains for you know, 15 minutes. We had 100 people you know, on that Zoom. And all of these young growers, they're just unbelievably shocked at one you know, how the reception is in the United States, their wine. Um, and they're just so thrilled, which is so meaningful to me, 
you know, that we can do something for the growers who are hardworking. And, you know, as I said earlier, that I can get so much positive feedback um, from, you know, bringing in a wine like this that isn't otherwise imported. That's, um, you know, I love shit like that, basically. Like, this wine's not imported or, like, there's only, like, five cases of it. So, thank you for bringing this. I, and just something you said, because with your partner, I remember when I got into the wine business in the mid to late 90s, um, you know, uh, Terry Thies was was a big champion of German wines. And he actually like, he sold his portfolio to Skernick. We're going to have Harmon on pretty soon. But um, uh, where were you – and you mentioned – so where were you buying these wines that – your German wines? Where was your primary wine shop and – Yeah. I would say um, Crush and Chambers. Okay. You know, absolutely. Um, certainly um, when Stephen was at Crush, you know, he was a, uh extraordinarily knowledgeable person. Um, I think, you know, him and I have been, you know, tasting together and hanging out. We've been to Germany together, you know, for, you know, now it's going on 15 years. Uh, chambers all throughout their history, um, even though they have been known as the natural wine shop, um, they always had a very good German program. Um, they've had multiple people there. John Ritchie, who actually now works for Stephen at Von Boden, at one point was the German wine buyer there. So those were two primary ones, but there are a lot more. One of the things I always used to love is, you know, in I travel a lot and I'm in California all the time. And, you know, allocations for certain German wines in New York amongst about 15 of us are always extraordinarily difficult. And then I would just go to L.A. and there'd be two cases sitting on the shelf of Woodland Hills or, I say, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, the yeah. wine house or something. Right, right. So. Um, with Wine Searcher, it's not so easy to do this anymore. But one of my <laughs> secret weapons used to be, you know, to hit up all the L.A. stores and uh, get more of what I wanted that I was fighting for amongst the 15 or so of us in the in the New York area um, who were going after these wines. You know, the Keller wines, I think Stephen's first offer for them may have been $40, um, but it didn't take long you know, for all of us to find out how great the wines were. And then it just became, you know, a competition to see who could get, you know, more than their, you know, four or five bottle allocation. So uh, California was always my secret weapon. Not afraid to share that now because it's it's a little bit less so, but it is still true to some extent. You know, there's a lot of great Riesling sitting on shelves um, in California. And there are, you know, multiple different distributors, as you know, and yeah. California has a lot of unique German distributors, um, that don't distribute things on the same cycle, um, as the East coast. So, uh, those are my two primary stores, but I buy from everyone. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Speaking of California, um, just a question in my head, have you ever found a, uh, expression of Riesling in California that you have enjoyed? The answer is no. Okay. I mean, that's fair enough. It's a fair enough question. But I, I struggle with it because um, somebody blind tasted me on a wine that we actually offered as a favor in source material. Uh, it's Desire uh, Wines. The winemaker works with um, the Bedrock crew. Okay. And Stephen tasted the wine and he fell in love with it. And we offered it out. And I had never tasted it. So I was at uh, Norita with some friends and they blinded me on it. And luckily I said, I liked the wine. <laughs> I'd be happy to drink the wine. It was aromatically beautiful, okay. but I did not come 
anywhere near guessing it was Riesling. Now, on one hand, um, that makes a lot of sense because a California Riesling should not taste like a German Riesling if you believe in terroir. Right. So it was a beautiful wine, but it didn't taste anything like Riesling. It just didn't have the acidity and the minerality that I like. So um, I just find... Um, it very hard for California, Oregon, New York. I was going to say, what compete. about New York? Because people, that's like, that's the buzz right now. Finger Lakes. I mean, I mean, like that's what people are saying. And but yeah. you're a guy like to me, it, it's not about titles. You you've been the amount of wine of German. You're a fucking German wine expert. So let's talk about Flex. People, that, you got to go to Flex. They got the great read. Like. And, and we're, we're going to taste two wines today yeah. that are in the $20, you know, category. Okay. Right? So this is a village level wine. Mm -hmm. uh, it's made from uh, three or four, you know, Grand Cru uh, level vineyards where they use a specific, you know, portion of it for their village level and blend it all together. The other one we'll talk a little bit more later, but is a beautiful Uli Stein wine. You just cannot compete at this price point in the U.S. in my mind. It's not that I don't love what they're doing. I have many friends up in the Finger Lakes. Uh, I love the the Bloomer Creek guys and a few others. And, you know, I've tasted Oregon, uh, you know, Rieslings. But for me, um, it just doesn't come close on the acidity level, which mm -hmm. is what is so important to me. Um, you just can't get the same level of ripeness and acidity that you can in Germany. Why? Because in Germany, one, you know, the the vines are very, very old. They're on very, very steep vineyards. The pHs are are proper. And these are people who have been farming their whole lives. Mm -hmm. So they know how mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. nail the pick. Mm -hmm. They know how to keep acidity. They know how to balance the ripeness with the acidity. And, you know, they're fourth, fifth, sixth generation. So, you know, the winemaker who's making wine out in, uh, you know, Santa Barbara County or Sonoma, you know, that's on their third or fourth vintage, you know, they're making great wines when you factor that in. But for me, um, it just doesn't come close to Germany. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. And I think, you know, having known a little about your story and coming from a region, and I had another guest, you know, I think there's people when you come from a working class family, you believe in hard work, like there's a certain respect uh, for craft that you probably grew up with, like that's innate to you. And the, you just, like you said, you can't compete with someone who's been doing it for 400 years or 300 years. You know, like, like yeah, you can make a good wine, but like literally the soil is in their blood, right? I mean, that, that's... that's and, and when you look at these vineyards and you look at how steep they are, there's no machines. Right. Um, they're very low yielding, so it's not very... Um, economical in terms of you know the production that comes out of them it's a it's a pure labor of love um, there's a small producer advisor counselor um, they go to their vineyards every day and repair the walls because the walls you know are 50 60 70 years old and they're made out of rock and they're repairing them by hand mm. you know they neither one of the couple who runs that winery grew up in the wine business so they had to buy uh, their vineyard. So what they did was they bought the vineyards that nobody wanted because they were very hard to farm. It just so happens that those are some of the greatest vineyards to make wine from because they're steep, they're low yielding, um, they're hard to farm. Uh, and literally they're in their vineyards every single day. I mean, I have many, many great friends in California, but they don't have to work, you know, literally 
uh, a tenth as hard as some of these German winemakers do. Now they have to deal with fires and right. droughts and other things, and, and anything in agriculture is super hard. But you can't help but fall deeper and deeper into love with Germany when you go there and you walk these vineyards. They they vibrate with energy because they, you know, the slate and the steepness of them. It captures the sun when you're walking through the vineyards. You feel it. You know, Uli Stein, who's a, a winemaker we're going to taste, um, you know, he has a small vineyard that was planted in 1900. It's in between two houses on a very, very steep vineyard. Um, <laughs> when you walk through that vineyard, there's no pesticides. There's nothing but butterflies and, you know, tons of different, you know, types of beautiful um, insects. And it's, it's literally vibrating with energy. And when you taste the wine, you taste that vineyard in it. You know, one of the fascinating things that, you know, I learned early on in my wine, you know, exploration is when I went out to California and you drive along the road and you see all those beautiful looking vineyards. Those aren't the good vineyards. Right. Because it's too easy. Yeah. You know, they, they make big, fat, plump grapes. Right. Yeah, the, the yields are great, but those aren't the good vineyards. What I learned um, really fast is the harder the vineyard was to get to, the better the wine was. Yep. So if it's on a steep hill and it's a really old vineyard and the vineyards look you know, very crappy. Those make great wines. I'll never forget. You know, Abe Schoner, who's a, a very dear friend. He took Scholian me to wine project. Took me to the Konsgard Judd Vineyard, and when I looked at the vines, I said, "Those look like William Burroughs vines because they look <laughs> like they were dying, but they're so powerful." When you you have tasted the Judge, you know, over your wine career, when you taste that wine and then you look at the vineyard, it's like, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. Those vines look like they're dying. Some of that translates over to Germany where, you know, the vines have to struggle so much that they just produce beautifully intense, high acid, fully ripe, low alcohol wines. Yeah. And you, when you – I love everything you shared. Thank you. This is just – not going to be a lot of me on this one. I'm just learning so much, this deep dive in German wines. But, you know, um, California is the wine country I lived in and, and I just remember what you said like um, – uh, about steep and mountain um, Martinelli jackass hill like you can't even they don't won't even allow you to plant a vineyard like that in the United States anymore and literally it's called jackass because you had to be an ass you had to be a jackass to try and farm and it's so steep but from what you're saying that's just common in Germany that's yeah. just that's just that's just the way of life I mean people die farming the vineyards in Germany because they're so steep yeah I mean, it's just, it's frightening to walk up and down the vineyards. I mean, you literally, you know, you feel like you're going to fall over. You're, you're almost walking straight up the side of a building. It's so difficult. That is crazy. And, and I won't be driving when we go there. That's for sure. <laughs> I've had some crazy, um, you know, uh, times driving through a vineyard. Um, one particular winemaker was driving so fast and so close to the edge it felt like I was on um, one of those old roller coasters where it takes you and you feel like you're going over the edge but then it turns at the last second that's how he was driving through one of the steep vineyards I thought I was gonna die I I, I had that experience with someone in California and it I'm sure it was not nearly as knowledge you're talking about but like it was in an old beat-up Jeep which I just saw, they just posted a picture. It's still going. I went there in 99 and the Jeep, it's the same Jeep. And the people are like, I was hanging on for dear life. <laughs> and, but that's California. So I've seen the, the, the pictures of Europe. Like, uh, 
Yeah, they they have roads. Uh, our one lane road is their two lane road sometimes. So, uh, yeah, fun stuff though. I mean, you're you're here, you survived, and you got stories to tell about it. So, so um, this first wine, just tell me a little bit about it. I mean, so you said it's like a village level wine. So it's from the the Rheinhessen. Yep. Um, the winemaker is Christine Huff. Uh, she uh, trained at Geisenheim. Then spent some time working with Klaus Peter Keller. Uh, her father still uh, takes care of all the vineyard work, which is very common in Germany. Uh, the father, or in some cases the mother, um, will allow the younger children to become winemakers and make the wine, but they don't feel that you are able to take care of the farming until you've had much more experience. So Christina is the winemaker. Her husband uh, is involved in all aspects of the winery. Her mother is involved in all aspects of the winery. Um, her dad, uh, as I said, farms the vineyards. Um, it's a small organic domain. They have about nine hectares. Um, within uh, the Rheinhessen, they're in an area called the Rotorhang, which stands for Red Slope. So it's this really amazing, deep red clay soil, which produces very um, unique wines. They have some of the top vineyards uh, in the Rotorhang. One of them is uh, Pettenthal, um, which Klaus-Peter Keller has made famous. It's one of the few vineyards that he's bought. Um, those wines sell for, you know, thousands of dollars, you know, a piece at auction. Um, you know, hers are, you know, $45. Uh, and she learned from KP. This is would be a level below the Pettenthal, so it's a blend of some of those vineyards. Okay, right, right. Um, it's got about five grams of Jules sugar, 7.8 grams of acidity. So I think, you know, in this area, they're not known for making wines that are super high acid. That's more in the Saar and the Ruhr and, you know, the Moselle area. Um, but I think it does have enough acidity to keep it lively, to keep the tension there. I think the aromatics are beautiful. It's about 12.5% alcohol. And every time I've opened this for a group of people, it disappears like water. It's, it just disappears so fast. It's so delicious to drink. And, you know, that's what I love about wine. Yeah, no, this is definitely a, a porch pounder. I think I'm going to be drinking a lot more Riesling this summer for sure. Um, and I, I also love that comment you made, like, you know, because when my winemaker friends I know from California, they say, you know, the wine is made in the vineyard, right? So the parents are like, we'll handle the grapes, you know, like – if the grapes are good, you can't fuck it up. So we'll let you play around with making the wine, but we'll handle the grapes. And, and it's, it's so like true. that's a philosophy for them. I think that's great. You know? Yeah, it's it's the knowledge that you gain over a lifetime uh, as a winemaker and you know managing vineyards. But also, I I think a lot of the uh, older generation winemakers in Germany, at least the ones that I've been exposed to, they don't like the whole. You know, selling aspect of it, yep. you know, the whole social media aspect of it. They don't like doing the, you know, uh, you know, winemaker dinner types in the U.S. So I think it works out really well that the younger winemakers, you know, can make the wine. They can learn about the farming and then they can go and learn about what is important from a, uh, you know, marketing aspect to actually sell the wines. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think that's great. Actually, I, I especially way you describe it. I think it's wonderful that you have these generations working together, and, and times are changing, um, and so the parents get to just keep making sure that the domain is in good shape, and then the kids can go out, they can make the wine, and they can do the IG lives and the podcasts, and 
you know, when things open up, I'm I'm sure you'll you'll be having some events and bringing some of these dynamic young people over. Um, Absolutely. You know, um, so um, I also read something um, in your bio or it was an article, uh, Riesling study. Tell me more about Riesling study. What was that about? So I have always um, tagged a lot of my Instagram post as Riesling study. And what Riesling study is to me, um, you know, is the love of Riesling. So, you know, I would go to a dinner party, bring six or seven different wines and just love to explain to people uh, what the wines were, what was unique about them. And it could be a group of wine professionals. It could be a group of um, novices. It could be a group of wine geeks. Um, I just love talking about Riesling. I love talking about German wine. So I always called it Riesling study. Uh, and then uh, last year, before the pandemic started, um, Stephen Bitteroff, who founded Riesling Fire, which is the La Pale version for German wine. Got it. He did seven uh, years in a row, extraordinarily successful. Um, all the top winemakers from Germany would come in, uh, some from Alsace, uh, and also Austria was predominantly German. Uh, it was a big gala, you know, 250, 300 people. Uh, every year there was a slightly different format. Some years he would have a lot of seminars uh, around it. Some years just some, you know, one-off winemaker dinners. And, you know, his business is going gangbusters and it's a ton of work. It's all on him. It's all nonprofit. So he decided to pause it for 2020, even before uh, the pandemic. And I was disappointed. It's my favorite day of the year. Um, I love Riesling Fire. So I said, okay, I'm going to do a small one. I'm going to call it Riesling Study, which is, you know, what I have always called, um, you know, my different, you know, variations of bringing lots of bottles and cracking them. And so I called Attaboy, which is one of my favorite restaurants. And I said, hey, I'd like to buy out the restaurant on a Sunday night. Here's what I need. Give me a price, including corkage for however many people you can hold. Um, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to invite all of these people and tell them to bring, you know, as much wine as uh, they would like to bring. Um, is that okay? And they said, sure. You know, for you, Robert, anything. I go there all the time. You know, we're, we're really good friends. So I did it. I advertised it on Wine Berserkers and on my Instagram. Within three days, it was sold out and I had like 50 people on a waiting list. So I said, wow, this is really cool. You know, I'm, I'm on to something. People started hitting me up. Can we do one in Trier? Can we do one in LA? Can we do one in Chicago, Boston, London, Damn. all over the world? So I immediately put another one up. My favorite pizza place now that Dom is uh, no longer working at Tafaro's is Ops Pizza. So I call up Ops, said, here's what I want to do. Buy a lunch Sunday. So it's a you know good time for you guys. Give me a price, all inclusive. And, you know, I'll take care of it. I'll get all the people. And they said, fine. I think we had capacity for 35 people. Um, and I put that up, sold out in 30 minutes. Damn. And I had 100 people on the wait list. And then the pandemic started. Right. Right. So we paused then. Uh, but then, you know, I was itching to try to get started again. And also one of the things that Stephen and I talked about is we wanted to integrate the concept of Riesling study as part of source material. So uh, our first offering for source material was uh, we asked Emmerich Schoenweber to bottle three liters of Hallenberg specifically for us. Uh, so they bottled 30 of them, and that was our first offer. 
um, out of the gate. So we wanted to do a small dinner to, you know, drink the wines of Emmerich Schoenberg. And we also wanted to include Schaefer Froelich and Keller and other great, you know, dry wines. So I did a small one, eight people at Gem Restaurant, um, another favorite restaurant. Chef Flynn did an incredible That's job. That's the, the young... The young, the yeah. young yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. just watched his story a couple months ago. It's yeah. an incredible story. Yeah. He's he's wise beyond his his years. Yeah, he looks like a total old soul, man. Yeah, he really. Yeah. So we had eight people. Um, we were way more than six feet apart. <laughs> we had the whole entire restaurant. We were about literally. I'm not exaggerating. Fourteen pe- uh, feet apart. Um, we didn't really talk a lot about the food pairings. I just kind of told them what I was doing. The food pairings were extraordinary. I did a playlist, which I do for all of the uh, Riesling studies. And there were a couple of moments when the wine and the music and the food just all, you know, meshed together. And I think we were all, you know, in need, you know, of some human contact at that point. It was September, October. um, And it was just magical. So that was the third uh, I just did one on Saturday at Oscar, another you know favorite restaurant of mine. Um, Chef Frederick is probably one of the most talented chefs in the world, definitely in New York. I asked him if we could do a smaller one as well. So we did age cabinets. We had cabinets from mm. 71 up through 2006. Um, many of the, the greatest cabinets ever made. We paired it with Nordic cuisine. Um, and that went extraordinarily well. Now that things are starting to open up, um, May 16th, I'm going to be doing the fifth one at Rule of Thirds. It's going to be outside. I'm going to try to keep the price point, you know, down and, and make it a little bit more accessible to uh, a larger Guys number like of people. Little humble little podcasters. <laughs> more, more, you know. <laughs> I, I like everyone to come. I mean, my my I thing get that about you, right? you know. My my thing with that's why I did Ops Pizza, right? Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, I I love it if the you know fifteen other German wine geeks in New York come. But in all honesty, one of my passions is to you know expose uh, you know German wine to lots of other people. So I save some seats. I give you know some things away at Riesling Fire. You know, I I bought you know a couple of seats for people in the industry. Um, you know, who could be anyone from a busboy, you know, to a cellar rat. You know, I, I try to do what I can, you know, to, to expose people to these wines. And it's, it's amazing to me, you know, how much they love it. I have a lot of, you know, young musicians and artists, you know, who have gotten on to, you know, following, you know, me and, and exploring German Riesling. And they, they can because, you know, some of the, you know, entry-level wines are, you know, affordable for anyone and they're great great wines yeah yeah um you know we're gonna we're gonna take a quick break and i want to come back and unpack something you said so we're gonna take a quick break uh here with my man robert soil pimp and we'll be right back if you follow me on social media you know i love discovering and drinking new and exciting labels and winemakers the wine spies offer wines like single vineyard tempranillo from amador county Single Vineyard Mount Veter Zen from Peter Franis. If you don't know who he is, now you know. Wine Spies has been gathering intel since 2007, so these guys are really connected in the biz, and that's how they can offer so many great deals. I love their locker feature. It lets you build a case over time so you can check out with just one bottle and avoid shipping charges. They have a top-notch tasting panel, so I can rely on the wines to be great every time, which lets me play around and discover more. 
The spies always take care of me. So if I'm not 100% happy with the wine, they'll make it right. And just for the listeners of my show, there's a special Black Wine Guy Experience URL discount code for $10 off your first order when you sign up at winespies.com forward slash black wine guy. Okay, we're back. So, you know, something you said earlier, um, there were a couple of things, um, and I, I'm going to, but I'm going to go to something because it was a perfect sub segue to the notes my producer gave me. And I'm actually using, no, I don't use a lot of notes, but she, she helped me do a deep dive on you. And, uh, you just, just, there's so much to unpack here. Um, um, playlist. So, you know, I know, we know you're, you, you know, you're a big vinyl, you love music. Um, talk about, you said, you said at that last tasting, like you said, the food, the wine and the playlist came together. Like, how'd you get into curating play playlists to correspond with wine specifically? Yeah, I think that I'm just passionate about um, a lot of things that go into you know, sitting down and having a great meal. Um, everything from the wines to the food to the music, um, everything to me is equally important. And you know, music is to me about emotion, uh, wine. You know, after my, you know, lifelong study of wine, it's really come down to emotion. I don't really care, you know, if it's on red slate, blue slate, green slate. It's kind of cool. I used to geek out about that. But now, you know, what I've learned after all these years, it's about emotion. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with music. You know, I can talk about obscure things that no one's ever heard and I can pull out records. You know, I have one record that five exist in the world. Um, but it's really about the emotion to me. So if I can get the music and the wine and the food to all be on the same note and have the, the same sort of emotional impact to me, um, that's really wonderful. And I just love people who care about that, yeah. right? One of the things that drives me absolutely insane about restaurants, besides poor glassware, is <laughs> when they, they can't get the music right. It's yeah. like, if it's just going to be a drone in the background, turn it off. You know, I hate it when... You know, you can't hear the music playing, especially when it's something that I want to hear. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's always frustrating for me um, when I'm at a restaurant and they're playing music that you either can't hear or you, uh, you know, don't like it. It ruins the experience for me. Um, I'll name names, but there's a, yeah, <laughs> a restaurant in uh, uh, San Francisco called Saison. It's a three Michelin star restaurant. Uh, went in there on a Friday night before a week-long conference. I planned, you know, a quiet night, uh, you know, to have a, a nice meal and drink, you know, a couple glasses of Riesling. I sat in the bar. There was no one in the bar. And they were blasting Huey Lewis in the news. And I asked the sommelier, is there any chance, since I'm the only one sitting in the bar, you could turn this music off? He said, I can't, Robert. It's part of the chef's vision. And I said, well, it's ruining my meal. Mm. And he walked away. So, you know, to me, um, you know, everything is important about a meal, the music, the people, um, you know, the food. We do a lot of dinner parties. Um, we always plan out, you know, the, the pairings, the coursings, the music. Um, it's always been a big part of, of everything that, uh, that we do. Well, <clears throat> I guess that chef thought it was hip to be square or something. <laughs> Um, so 
we're on to another wine. And this is, I think this might be my first Keller. And uh, it's a believe the hype. Just the aromatics. Like, my producer's like, what was that face you made? Just, <laughs> do you put your nose in this? Like, oh. So, so talk, talk about this wine, man. So, Jancis Robinson calls the Keller G-Max the Montmartre of Germany. Klaus-Peter Keller um, is a very, very um, special person. I absolutely love him. We have been lucky enough to hang out a bunch of times. He's one of the most fun people in the world to taste wine with because he will geek out on a wine from the Jura or, you know, a Koch or a DRC. Mm-hmm. They're all, you know, equal in his mind. And when we did the happy hour that I mentioned earlier with the growers that he selected, you know, we asked the growers what's the you know biggest influence that Klaus Peter Keller um, has had on you. And they said, you know, he tells us we have to taste the great wines of the world. So Klaus Peter Keller, I think, wanted to make a wine that would be amongst the great wines in the world that would be right at home next to a DRC Montmartre, you know, next to uh, a Koch. Um, so this is his top wine. Um, he puts, you know, a lot into it. Uh, I think it's his way of demonstrating to the world that German Riesling is as great, um, as the great wines of the world. Um, he also makes, and this is, you know, something I like to highlight to people, you know, he makes a lot of great entry level wines too. Uh uh He makes a wine called Vonderfels and, you know, that's a, you know, 35 ish dollar bottle of wine, but he declassifies a lot of the Grand Cru fruit into Vonderfels for two reasons. One, to make the Grand Cru's, which are the GG's, better, but also to make a wine that anyone can try and, you know, get uh, a flavor for what his wines are like. So this is his top wine. This is, you know, arguably the the top dry wine uh, made in all of Germany. Um, Super rare. You have to buy a case uh, to get it because he doesn't want people only buying this wine and flipping it. Yeah. People still flip it. Of course. But to get this wine, you have to buy a case. Sometimes it's six bottles. Sometimes it's 12 bottles. And it's really, you know, his, in my opinion, um, you know, his way of saying Germany should be on the same level um, as all the great wines in the world. Well, two things. One, I like what he does. He declassifies. He's like the crack man. He gives you a little taste. First taste. First taste. I'm like, like 35 bucks for him. First taste is free. And then he hooks you. But um, to your point about just creating a great white wine of the world. So um, I've said it. You know, the, the wine country I've lived in is is California. I can't wait to like now you got me. I'm like, I'm going to hit you up. Like, where should I go in Germany? Um, but. I remember there's two people in California. So I did an IG live with Stu Smith, a Smith Madrone, mm-hmm. who is OG, was in Napa Valley before Judgment of Paris. And he's like, he planted Cabernet, Riesling, and Pinot Noir. He couldn't grow Pinot Noir. But he, he said, I, gra- I planted Riesling because I thought it was the most important white grape. Yep. And I've, I've been there. I visited him. Yeah. And also Randall Graham from yep. Bonnie Dune said, he said, uh, Riesling should be a noble grape. And... Um, so there are people who, who recognize they can't get what we get here. But when when you have something like this, just the aromatics, like I put my nose on it and I start making faces like those good, like, 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 like sex or like, oh, like, you know, just making faces like what? Like, mm, you know, uh, So I, I have a lot of friends in, in Napa and one of my great friends is uh, Kathan Moody. OK. If you don't know about his 
wine project you you have to research him you should have him on the show um but he very rarely leaves the mountain um he's been planting a vineyard on the top of diamond creek for the last 12 15 years for most of that time he lived in a one-room cabin and all he does is get up and work 18 hours a day and plant this vineyard he loves diamond creek he thinks diamond creek is the only true you know first growth in california the only true winery that showcases uh, terroir. So he got together a group of people, all the top winemakers from Napa, um, the guys from Harlan, Screaming Eagle, Tegan Pasolacquas, um, the Turleys, everyone, you know, the top, top winemakers in all of uh, Napa. I think I might have been the only civilian invited. <laughs> yeah. It was over. You're kind of like the Jason Bourne of wine, bro. <laughs> it was over uh, two days. Yeah. So we tasted about 40 different vintages. But one of the highlights of the weekend was I brought a case of German wine. And on the dinner, uh, it was Saturday and Sunday, and there was a dinner Saturday night. When I cracked that case, there was like 68 Ridge Montebello. There was, you know, Diamond Creeks going back to the first vintage. There was 78 Lake. You should have seen all of these winemakers look at that case of German wine. They absolutely love it. And they don't really get to drink it much because yeah. there's not a lot of uh, German wine uh, in Napa. And they spend so much time, you know, drinking either you know, things from the region or things that they need to drink, you know, right. for reference like, points. Like Bordeaux stuff for reference they, points. They really right. don't drink it yeah. as much as they like, but they totally geeked out. I was the coolest guy at the party for an hour <laughs> or so when I was handing out the, you know, the glasses of Riesling. So I love to tell the German winemakers that story, and they, and they just can't even believe it, you know, that their wines are thought so highly of, uh, in particularly Napa, you know, as well as all over in winemaking, uh, you know, regions of the world. Well, my first trip to California was to the Central Coast, and uh, it was more specifically to go visit Gary Pisonia in Santa Lucia Highlands. And I distinctly remember we went we went uh, to his to you know met him at the Valley floor, and then we we're going up his up the mountain. And um, he grabbed you know he had his own wine, and he, and he which you know he had like a whole wine cob up on the mountain, but he grabbed a seventy six Splate Lace Riesling. So I, I do know, like, so that that spoke to me, like, how the respect, like, this guy makes Pinot Noir, like, that's what he grows, but he he grabbed a bottle of Riesling. I mean, like, the the, the guys out there who know, like you said, they maybe they don't have the opportunity, and that was ninety nine, so it was thirteen. It was like, and but they they do love Riesling, you know. This my just first trip to, to to Burgundy, um, Russell Hone, we were at Becky and uh, and Russell's house having dinner. When Russell heard that I loved Riesling, he lit up. Next thing I know, there was a magnum of Egon Mueller <laughs> that he was just dying to crack, and, and we did. So all over the world. And it's the same, though, in, in Germany. You know, when you go to uh, the German wineries, they love Burgundy. Klaus-Peter Keller, when he came uh, to New York for the last Riesling fire, I took him to Roberta's with a bunch of other people. You know, Stephen coordinated it. I brought all old California, 90 uh, Diamond Creek Lake, which is not the best lake. It's a little bit on the green side, but he just loved that wine. 
um, four or five others. And, you know, he still talks about it to this day, drinking old Napa cab, you know, eating pizza at Roberta's. I mean, that's just the type <laughs> of guy he is. He'd feel, you know, equally comfortable, you know, at a high end, you know, DRC or coach dinner or, you know, drinking old Napa cab at Roberta's. That's awesome, man. Um, so there's one more thing on the music movement. So you recently posted something about uh, German wine and Zamrock. Tell me more about that pairing. And, and there's probably a lot of people who don't know what Zamrock is. So what's Zamrock and how'd that pairing come together? Sure. Um, so Zamrock is a very, you know, niche musical genre. Um, probably, you know, was from 73, 74 to maybe 77, 78. Um, and I, as I understand it, um, in Zambia, the uh, person who was the president um, decided that there should only be Zambian music played on the radio. I think it was something like 90%. So there was funding for all of these local bands to play uh, and record, and they were all influenced by what was contemporary at the time. So a lot of English rock, um, a lot of you know U.S. rock, Jimi Hendrix, they were also influenced by funk, James Brown. But then they took it and they blended it with their own music and their own African uh, rhythms. And the sad thing is that um, the records didn't really make it out of the country. Mm -hmm. And it was a very short period of time. And a lot of those musicians died in the 80s, uh, mostly because of AIDS. And the records that were in the country were just trashed. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, Ethan Alapant from Now Again Records, um, you know, he's been, you know, the leading person to, you know, go out and find all these records, find what he could, put out reissues. And I became aware of the genre through him. And when I listened to this music, it just blew my mind. You know, the funny thing is every song that you listen to, you think of something that it reminds you of. There's one song on the album that um, was part of the uh, collaboration, which is... Um, uh, the piece, um, it sounds like REM, but it was done in 1973. <laughs> but wow. you listen to something else and you're like, oh, this sounds a little bit like Black Sabbath, but it's still unique. It sounds, you know, completely, you know, Zambian. Um, so what we did, and this is part of our, you know, strategy with source materials, we want to do partnerships with various, you know, other, you know, artistic mediums, music, fashion, art. So I know the Vinyl Me pe uh, Please people, you know, reached out to them and said, we'd like to do a pairing with you. We'll offer, you know, a couple of wines. You offer, you know, a record. They said, pick what you want. So I picked the Zambian record. So we sent out a email on Sunday to their mailing list, which is extraordinarily large. I, I'm, I used to be on a mailing list. You're gonna have to. I'm gonna have to hit you up afterwards. I gotta get that. I gotta <laughs> get that. I got that. my wife gave me that as a gift. Vinyl me, please subscription. So I'm gonna have to get it's that. It's a fantastic one. company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they sent it out to their mailing list on Sunday, um, and then we sent it out to our mailing list on Wednesday. And the idea was to kind of cross, you know, collaborate, you know, and get some of their mailing list to buy some German wine. Yeah. yeah. Um, get some of our mailing list to buy some of you know, one of their records. And there, there's something, there's a thread, you know, between the two that I think only I could think of, right? It, it's a geeky sort of niche area. One of the wines we, you know, uh, offered was from uh, Joachim Boyer, who's in Swabia. So it's not even the Mosul or the Rheinhessen. It's a very geeky, obscure area. And then Zamrock. 
And the thing that to me, which is similar, is that it's for people who really want to geek out, really want to research, really want to learn about something that's not force fed to them, mm. you know, in the top 40 or, you know, wherever else you learn about music today or learn about wine. So even though on the surface, what the heck does Zamrock and German wine have in common? But to me, it was for the the collector, you know, the the person who knows everything about music, who wants to learn about, you know, a geeky, obscure area of wine. So that was kind of the the thought behind it. Um, it worked out okay. Um, you know, there's complexities with you know wine laws, as you know. You know, we, could, we couldn't do it in one click. You know, it had to be one place for the wine, one right, place right, for the right. record. Um, but when I stepped back and, and thought about it after we kind of looked at how it did, I'm like, we must be nuts offering, you know, German wine and Zamrock <laughs> where you have to click, you know, two different, you know, uh, sources to buy them. I was joking with Steve and I'm like, you know, the sociologist in me wants to like do a Beyonce Pinot Gris, you know, offering just to see <laughs> what, what the reaction would be. <laughs> Because I think sell five minutes. I, and Stephen's great about this stuff. He loves the more you know geeky, the more obscure. But I think when you're so deep into it, you you tend to forget like what were we thinking. <laughs> but that's what we want to do, you know. And that's why we love German wine. You know, that's why we you know love wines like this. It's a good segue actually into you know the last wine that I brought. But um, it, well, it well, worked out well. well. Let's pause. Let's have a little bit more of that killer. It's so damn good. Can I have some of that killer? Um, but yeah, I, I think what you said, I mean, but I think what you're doing though, it's curated. And what's nice about curation is, you know, you're gonna really find your tribe, right? These aren't these aren't um, people who are trendy. These are people who are looking for a certain um, you know, uh, and and so for me, like, yeah, I do studies of internet marketing, you don't want to make two clicks, but like Someone who's going to be interested is two clicks isn't going to throw them off. And they're like, yeah. God damn it. Yeah. And the thing I've learned about German wine is um, I've heard all throughout, you know, my wine, you know, collecting and drinking career that German wine's a tough category. And I, I turned so many people onto it. And I now have so many people who follow me just to learn about German wine. And now that for the first time in my life, I'm ever, you know, technically in the wine business, it's not hard to sell German wine. You just have to be passionate about it. In my day job, in some of the pharma companies that I cover, there's a term called promotionally sensitive. Mm -hmm. German wine is promotionally sensitive. You have to be a little bit passionate about it and you have to, you know, sell it a little bit. And once you do that and then people understand how great it is, um, you have them hooked. I mean, your Instagram is gangster, let's be honest. 18,000 people. Thank you. Without your name. I mean, I mean, that's like gangster. Like, and, and you're right. They're tuning in to learn. And, 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 you know, thank you. Um, I mean, Instagram to me has been um, such a godsend because I work in a profession where, you know, I don't really interact, uh, you know, on a daily basis with people who are into Zamrock and, you know, <laughs> German Riesling. I do have a lot of the you know young guys in my office on to German Riesling, not Sam Rock yet. Um, so what Instagram you know has done for me is I can you know have a conversation with a guy in Tokyo, you know who's into Zamrock, or you know someone in London 
who wants to know what Riesling to buy. And, and the questions that I get, you know, the DMs that I get from all over the world um, asking me about wines and records are just incredible. Uh, so it's been, you know, wonderful to actually connect with people who, you know, are more uh, aligned with your interests, you yeah. know, are. And that's, you know, to me what Instagram has been. That's 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 really so fucking dope. Um, so obviously, you're a huge fan of German wines. Some would say you're. A, I would say you're a evangelist. Um, but you're also a collector. Like, let's talk about like this collection of wine you have, man. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I am a collector. Um, I'm not the the best collector because I'm not great at editing. Um, so I buy a lot, you know, both records and uh, wine. And to me, you know, the process of finding wine and buying wine is actually part of the fun uh, of it. Um, but luckily, you know, over the years, I've gotten to know the producers that I really love uh, and been able to go really deep on them. There are some wines that are hard to get, but it's not like Burgundy where it would be impossible to have the collection that I did, you know, unless you're a billionaire. Um, so, you know, I love the wines that I like. You know, Uli Stein uh, is a perfect example. You know, very small, very obscure producer. I love his wines. Been buying, you know, these wines since they hit the U.S. and been lucky enough to backfill some of the others. So um, it's just been, you know, a great, you know, experience collecting. And I, I open wine all the time. You know, I'm not a collector that has cases, you know, that are, you know, not cracked. And in fact, you know, Klaus-Peter Keller will probably be annoyed when he sees that we opened up a 15 G Max. I open wine. You know, no, I it's, love that. It's here, it's here I, to drink. I will open any wine. I love that. You know, for anyone, you know, I bring, when I do the Riesling studies, I bring 10 or 15 wines from my cellar. I send people wine, you know, like, People hit me up. What's an old, you know, Riesling really taste like? I'm like, let me send you one. You wow. Know? When I go out to L.A., um, you know, there are these record pop-ups at Rap Cats that I, I go to. I bring, you know, 10, 15 wines, just open them for everyone. Um, so I love – that's part of the, you know, joy of collecting for me. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of people online, you know, talking about – you know, I'm 57 and a half, you know, how much more <laughs> wine do I need? And what I always say to them is keep buying and opening. You know, if you have the, you know, means, you know, the joy of, you know, buying and researching and studying and, and learning about wine is to open them for people. And that's what I do. You know, I'm not trying to gauge that, you know, I've got 42 years of life left in me, so therefore I have enough wine. No. You know, I will just keep opening, keep turning people on to German wine. It's the, you know, to me, it's as equally as enjoyable as drinking the wines. Oh, my God. I love that. I love that. Um, and, I, you, I mean, and it would seem to me, you, you know, I, I could be fantasizing here or I could have been drinking because this is the second episode. Um <laughs> But like you're, you're the type of guy like who probably has a reputation in Germany. Like, oh, you, you, you gotta get, you gotta, you gotta break Robert off a case. Like, you, you must have rep where, where you're getting shit because, because you, you for your love. Like, I think you know we say game recognize game. Like, you know, people must, you must have somewhat of a reputation over there. Like, oh, oh you got, you got to let Robert try this shit. Like, 
Yes and no. Okay. It, it's some, some of that for sure. But one of the, and I just, you know, sit back and laugh. So I won't mention the name of the store or the wine, but it's a wine that I've been championing for 10 years. And uh, a reviewer just gave it a high score. So I got an offer for it. I put my order in like, sorry, you know, we're really going to have to, you know, cut you back. And I'm like, Nobody even knew about this wine. <laughs> like, bitch, I, I've been talking about this shit for 10 years. Until I, you going to come back my yeah. fucking allocation? Are you out your motherfucking mind? That's what I would say. But. Yeah. Until, I, until, you know, I've been Instagramming <laughs> it for, you know, literally five years. So I just laugh about it. I mean, the, the good thing is that I've got enough wine and there's enough great wine out there that I don't get too fussed about it. But it is kind of funny that I feel like I have um, contributed to making a lot of wines that I love much, much harder to get. I know that's I'd say that all the time like I, I pump up certain producers I'm like I don't know why I'm telling you shit but this is like it's, it's under the radar you're not listening to me it's only gonna make it harder for me to get this shit but like yeah but like you said like early on in the conversation you're you're helping sustain domains you're helping yeah the growers the are yeah. just such wonderful people if I can help them um, and I can make their wines more well-known and I, I can help them sell some wine, you know, whatever little bit I can do is so gratifying and yeah. to turn, you know, really good people onto it. Um, that makes me happy. You know, the, the Zamrock Riesling offer that we did, some guy that I have no idea, um, you know, who he is hit me up on Instagram and said, my mom just bought a pack. I'm like, all right. <laughs> I'm I'm happy. Right. You know, My work here is done. Someone's mom now has a you know Zamrock album and two great bottles of Riesling. So, you know that made my day. It's not a fucking story you hear every day in the wine business. I mean, that's fucking awesome. Man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, oh my god, this 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 Keller wine is. I mean the intensity of it. I mean <sighs> I I think you know you can see. And, and this is way too young. I will admit it. Of but course, I, but I'm not going to deny that it's not great. Yeah. You know, but it, this, you know, next to the great wines of the world that we've been talking about, would be right at home. It's got the intensity. It's got you know all of the, you know, exotic fruits, acidity, the ripeness, everything, the structure. You know, you you can see that this wine will evolve for 50 years. Yeah, and the word that I love that comes to mind particularly with great white wines for me is tension just everything is just yeah there's it's a my number favorite thing. yeah it's yeah. just like everything's just like you know just it's there's just an energy and and it's holding on but it's it, it's all harmonious but they, they all they're all express all the notes are expressing themselves at the highest level and you really get that i mean yeah this this is um this it's is one the, of the greatest white wines in the world without a doubt i i I've 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 been fortunate because I've worked at a, a place. I worked at Acker, did auctions. So I've tasted a lot of those white and and even even John, who was on the show, he drinks a ton of Keller. He drinks a ton of Riesling right yep. now. Um, uh, you know, Michael Skernick drinks a ton of Riesling. Like people who like white wine drink a ton of fucking Riesling because one, it's just a value play. It's yep. just it's just an incredible yep. value play. You're getting that you're getting you're getting that Grand Cru white Burgundy. That, that is absolutely true, but I hate it I because it. people lead with that. Um, the great thing about, you know, the Keller G-Max is that if you just sat down with a group of high-end collectors who were drinking, you know, Grand Cru Burgundy and put this alongside of it, 
they would love it and they would want it. Yeah, it would fuck them up. This yeah. is this type of wine. And that fucks it's absolutely up. true that yeah. German wine's a great value, no question. But I also hate that you know some wine professionals lead with that. Well, totally. I mean, you know, we talk. I mean, the same thing. I talk about this with Spanish wines, right? Like, like wines from Spain that compete with first growth Bordeaux are a steal. Yeah. You know, because of where they're from. It's still Spain, you know? So, um, that being said, oh my God, I don't want to finish this color. We got one more wine to go through here. But, I mean, literally, just just fucking stone fruit for days. It's got, it's got, it's got the, the signature. The finish is so persistent. Yeah. You're going to taste this tomorrow. And this is after you were drinking, you know, Zen, so. Yeah. It's, and, it's, and, and it's I cleared out your palate. Exactly. <laughs> it is totally clean my palate. Of, of you're gonna taste it tomorrow. Oh my god! I mean that—that's the earmark of a really great wine when when you can taste it the next day. Yeah, either that—that that might be the best fucking quote to come out of this show so far. And you know who we've had on here, but like, wow! No one the hallmark that you could taste. And I, I feel you, brother. Like this is one. Like this is this is wines where, like, I would finish this bottle. And I would keep the bottle around, and like on day, I'd be sticking my nose in the bottle, and it would just right. and sniff all the way down the bottle. Like, oh right. my god, it's so good, you yeah. know? I agree. Yeah, no, I I get that. I it, this is this is a uh, transformative experience I'm having on the black wine guy experience. Um, so, mm. 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 that's so good. That's ridiculous. And what's the alcohol in this? I'm just curious. I'm going to guess it's, you know, 13 and 13, half, 14 yeah. and a half. I mean, but it's, I mean, I mean right. it's got everything. It's got legs. It's got everything. It's got viscosity. And it's incredible acid. It says 13 on the label, oh. but, it, you know, it's somewhere in the 13. Wow. The 14 would be my guess. Yeah. So we talked about this earlier, but I want to talk a little bit more about source material because it kind of it got hit a hiccup because of the pandemic. Source material got off to a good start. The, okay. the Riesling study stuff, you know, took a pause because of the, uh, okay. the pandemic. Source material is is going extraordinarily well. So it's Stephen Bitteroff, mm -hmm. uh, who is the uh, founder of Von Boden, which is one of the best, you know, German uh, wine import companies. He's also the founder of Riesling Fire. Um, what we wanted to do is there's a lot of producers that are a little bit too small for Von Boden. Um, there are... Uh, specific bottlings that Stephen would like to do occasionally that don't fit into the normal, you know, distribution channel. Uh, and then we wanted to do collaboration, you know, type things in events um, like Riesling Study to get more and more people into German wine. So our first offering, we went to Emmerich Schoenlieber. As you guys can tell, I love Klaus-Peter Keller, but yeah. Emmerich Schoenlieber is right up there with KP. Um, and he's not as well known uh, as he should be. Uh, in the U.S. I mean, when people who I turn on to Keller freak out and I tell them, here's the good news. <laughs> Their wines aren't as expensive as you think they are, but you can't find them. <laughs> so let me turn you on to the other part of the trilogy, which would be Emmerich Schoenlieber would be, you know, one of the other top three or four uh, German producers. So Stephen asked uh, Frank Schoenlieber if he could bottle three liters of Hollenberg for us in 2019. Uh, he did. Uh just happened to be a little bit lucky. I think it's the dry wine of the vintage. If you look at every single review out there, if you look at all of the wines, it's you know in the top two or three, uh, without a doubt. So we bottled 33 liters. 
So I was, so these are three liter bottles. Yeah, three liters. Okay. Only for us. Sold out, you know, extraordinarily quickly. The second offering, we uh, did the, the Keller um, six-pack, which were five curated growers that Klaus-Peter Keller um, picked specifically for us. We've gotten enormously, you know, great feedback uh, from those. We also asked another producer, Vausenhaus, to make three liters of their wine. If you don't know Vausenhaus and you're a Burgundy fan, they are absolutely the best Pinots you know, made in Germany and will compete with Burgundy head-to-head. Um, and then we've done a lot of other, you know, interesting offers. We did a library offering from Prum that Katarina and Steven um, selected the wine specifically. Katarina um, wrote a nice letter. Um, we have released a couple of smaller producers that haven't been, uh, you know, imported in the U.S. Daniel Twardowski. Uh He is a wine broker by day, winemaker by night. You know, he gets his barrels from DRC. He's making Pinot Noir in the Mosul. Even within Germany, these wines are, you know, talked about in, you know, sort of hushed, you know, tones. Not many people have tried them. Um, we did the Zamrock um, pairing. So you're going to see a lot of different things like this from us. What I will say is it is not hard to sell German wine. We're doing great. It ain't hard for you. you. Know, I mean, I mean, and, 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 and you said this before. It's like when you have a passion for something um, and you said the, the energy that comes through, like, like I'm like, shit, like. I was going to do this deep dive on Australian wines this year, but now, like, I'm going to do Australian. I like, I'm like, and you're talking about these Pinot Noirs, and yeah. what are we drinking now? Because this is just so. This is Uli Stein, 2019 Weihwasser, which stands for Holy Water. Um, Uli Stein is a rebel winemaker who's been, you know, making wine from these old steep vineyards in the Lower Moselle since the 80s. Um, he's really fought to keep these vineyards alive. He makes incredible wines. I actually had this wine New Year's Eve midnight with incredible, you know, firework display uh, at a club in Ghana. And it was, I'm sorry, mind-blowing. Who the fuck is this guy? So, <laughs> I love you, man. Like, <laughs> it's Fireworks. I was like, I was like, okay, he's probably got some six pad in New York City, in Ghana, in 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 Ghana. So I'm gonna shut up. I want to hear the rest of the story. It, it, it's an amazing story. So um, my wife and I love to travel, and obviously there are you know very few places that we can travel because of the COVID restrictions. One of the places in the world that has very low COVID, and uh, you're allowed to travel with you know a negative COVID test is Western Africa and Ghana in particular. So uh, two friends of ours have been trying to get us to go um, for New Year's Eve the last few years. And um, Ghana is like the hotspot for New Year's Eve. So you have to book like nine months in advance. And I never know what I'm doing, you know, for the next two weeks, let alone nine months. This year, we were able to book, you know, four or five weeks out. So we did. And I'm like, what am I going to do for wine? I, I can't you know, survive, you know, a week in Ghana without reasoning. <laughs> and evidently you're allowed to bring in one and a half bottles. So I decided I'm going to bring a case. I have this cool wine case that I use yep. when we go out, you know, travel around the world and, and go to shows and things. So I said, I'm going to fill it with, you know, a bunch of wine, you know, that if I have to lose it, it's, it's not okay. the end of the world. Right. So I put a bunch of 20 to $30 Rieslings, you know, in a case. Um, 
my wife said, you're not, you're never going to get there. And I said, look, either I'm going to get two or three bottles in or I'm going to pay some stupid, you know, duty um, or I'm going to lose it all or I'm going to get it all in. So we, uh, we get to Ghana, we get our second COVID test, which you had to do in the airport. Um, it took forever for my uh, wine case to come out because they treated it like some special, you know, <laughs> breakable. So they didn't even put it on the belt. My wine case comes out roll up to, you know, the last stage where they ask you if you have anything to declare. The guy says, what's in that box? I said, wine. He said, go ahead. <laughs> so walk right through the case of German wine. So my friend Q, um, who is royalty or, you know, a VIP in Ghana, yeah. every club we went, we walked in with wine. Oh, we had to shit. buy a bottle. Right. Not because we needed to buy a bottle to get in the club, to get ice. <laughs> so... <laughs> We were buying bottles of Monkey 47 gin so I could get the ice to stick the Riesling in. So this bottle of wine, New Year's Eve, you know, the most beautiful fireworks I've ever seen. I'm drinking this wine and I'm like, I just can't believe how great it is. I mean, not only is it a great wine, not only do I know the winemaker, I've visited him many times. Um, not only is it incredible to be drinking it here in Ghana next to the water in a you know club with beautiful fireworks, but I got it in and I wouldn't want to be drinking any other wine in the world. And it's one of my favorite wines, uh, you know, from the last six to 12 months. You know, his Uli Stein's collection of 2019s are just incredible. Um, he doesn't have any children, so he hired uh, a guy by the name of Phil Lardo to be his number two. And I think, you know, Phil will eventually take over the winery. And Phil has really, um, you know, improved the wines even more. They were great before, but I, I think he's, you know, put a little bit of, uh, you know, energy into the winemaking program and, you know, has newer ideas and you can taste it. And the wines are just getting better and better. And they're just so um, soulful and joyous. And this wine to me is is life affirming. Um, damn. I mean, Damn. Uh, the aromatics just lifted, just floral notes and just. But I know I, mean, I said I hate it, but it's 21 bucks. Oh. I mean, the acid in there, it's, it's a fine herb style, which, you know, anyone who's listening, if you want an inside tip, look at all the fine herbs. It's a category that is misunderstood. Okay. And a lot of times um, winemakers will get wine. That stops at an RS level that is fine herb. Fine herb is somewhere between a dry wine. Dry wine is, you know, maximum RS is about 10 or 11 grams of sugar. Um, fine herb is usually somewhere between 10 and 20. So it's not quite dry. It's not really a cabinet. These are the winemakers that, um, the wines that the winemakers love to drink. And it's kind of a confusing category. So they're always, you know, much less expensive than their higher end dry counterparts. Klaus Peter Keller, you know, does one that is Grand Cru fruit. I think he sells it for about half of what the, the dry sells for because it's a misunderstood category. But if you want a wine that's just joyous and just makes you happy to drink, check out the fine herb category. Yeah. Um, and, and you know what? I mean, this has been such an... It's so high level. I'm, I'm not anybody, but it's way over my head, so I've learned a shit ton. Um, but... I think that's one of the, in the U.S. particularly, Riesling suffers from this reputation of it like it's sweet. So like, this has fruit, but it this still finishes dry to me. That I don't. This is not. This is not cloying. This is not hanging yeah. on my palate. This is not. 
This is I wouldn't consider this a sweet wine, but I tell you what, this is a fucking spicy food killer. Absolutely. You, you put this with some, some anything spicy, man. Some some like extra spicy Indian Thai, like like just that RS you're talking about would just just hit the spice and just fucking orgasm in your mouth. I, I, I mean, literally. Yeah. I'll tell you my theory on the, you know, the sweetness issue. One, you know, there's just a lot of misinformation. Uh, and then also a lot of the U.S. winemakers make sweeter wines because that's what their audience want, particularly, you know, if you go up into the Finger Lakes. But Riesling is the most uh, sensitive grape to temperature. And when I go out for business dinners, I always try to slide a Riesling in. And I do it, you know, with a little bit of trepidation. Nine out of ten times it goes great. But every once in a while somebody will say, um, that wine's too sweet for me. And I will know the wine and I will know that it's, you know, 100% dry. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. if it gets served slightly too warm and it's misjointed, I think, you know, a lot of tasters interpret that as sweetness. Correct. So if you serve a Riesling – at, you know, somewhere between 48 and 50 degrees to start and everything is fully in balance, you're not going to get that sweetness. If you start at 55, 56 in a lot of restaurants because Riesling isn't their most popular category, don't have them in an area of the cellar where they're ready to go. So they always serve them too warm and it really, really affects the Riesling. I've had many, you know, Rieslings that taste a little sweet. And then I cool them down to the right temperature, and all of a sudden, it's like magic. They become harmonious, and the sugar and acid and everything is in perfect balance. Whereas if it's just a little bit too warm, one of those elements can be out of out of balance. I mean, but this thing's been out of ice for like 80, 90 minutes, and it's yeah. still singing. So yeah, uh, it would be a lot better if it was a little colder. I, I believe you, but yeah. I, I, but to like. Fucking, I'm black. Kool-Aid. This is not sweet. I'm just letting people know. It's not sweet. Your palate's off. Um, but talking about being sensitive to temperature, something I was thinking about uh, that, and I just held the question because I've just been so enthralled just in what you're sharing is, um, what have your friends, winemakers, like a Keller and all these people, how has climate change, how is it affecting German wines? Um How's it affecting German wines? Yeah, I think um, it's been blown out of proportion a little bit. Okay. Climate change is clearly a major issue. However, as we talked about earlier in the conversation, these are people who are in the vineyards every day. Klaus-Peter Keller is one of the most famous people in the world of wine, and he is in his vineyard every day. So they are dealing with it you know, through farming. And they're, they're looking for different sites. They're, they're looking for different ways to manage the crops. And, you know, they're fastidious people. So it's affecting it. I would say net-net climate change for Germany is great. Um, some of the Moselle uh, winemakers who 10 years ago made some pretty, uh, in my opinion, non-interesting dry wines are making great dry wines. Some of the Pinots uh, in riper areas are, I think, great. So I think net-net is a positive and you have to just, you know, understand that these guys, you know, farm, you know, so intensely that they're dealing with it on a day-to-day -day basis. What's really hard and what's really fascinating is take Cabinet, which is a love of mine. Um, it's very hard to make 
an old school cabinet, something that you would get in the 70s. Similarly to Napa, it's very hard to make a 70s style Napa cab. You have to go and find the right site. Uh, a few years ago at Riesling Fire, Egon Mueller um, was saying that, you know, the irony is that it cost him more money to make a true cabinet than it does to make an Auslice, even though you know, the market value of those wines are dramatically different because you have to find the right site, you have to spend more time on the farming. Um, so certain categories it's going to affect, but net-net, it's a, it's a huge positive. And, you know, I will take winemakers who live in the vineyard and, you know, have faith that they're going to figure out ways to deal with it. I certainly don't find any, you know, lack of acidity in all the wines I drink, you know, due to global warming. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. So, <clears throat> if if you had to, like, what was the bottle of Riesling that broke it wide open for you? Yeah, the the irony is it's an Austrian wine. Okay. <laughs> but the, the, the wine that really, really did it for me was 90 um, Nikolai Vinotech. I don't know if you remember that wine, but mm -mm. that was a wine that... I think they kept in a large fooder um, for close to 10 years. So I probably had the wine, you know, shortly after release in the late 90s. And that to me was, you know, as good as any wine that I've ever had. And that sent me down the path of exploring Austrian wine, which then led to, uh, you know, German wine. But, you know, unequivocally 90 uh, Nikolai Phenotech, and <laughs> I've tried to find another one of those, you know, since that time that was that good, and I've come close, but never quite like that first one. Wow! And then also way, way back in the conversation, um, you you uh, said you Alsace came out of your mind. So there's a very popular movie series, and there's there's a lot of psalms, and like this is the best Riesling, and it's from Alsace. Alsace Riesling versus German Riesling. I don't drink much Alsace. It's a little bit, it lacks the acidity that I like. Um, mm. So I, I just don't drink a lot of it. You know, certainly, you know, Trimbach and others are, are great wines that mm -hmm. belong right up there in this conversation with the great wines of the world. But I personally just don't, you know, drink a lot of the wines. Um, you know, one of the, the highlights for me of, you know, the Riesling Fire dinners was I went to a dinner with Egan Mueller and Jean Trimbach. It's Mueller, and, is that uh, from Mueller Couture? Uh, no, Egan Mueller. Just Egan Mueller. So Egan Mueller would be um, the Klaus Peter Keller equivalent for sweet wines, okay. although okay. he's a different generation. Gotcha. So, you know, he's the DRC of sweet wines in Germany. Gotcha. And they actually became friends in the 80s doing marketing trips to the U.S. They, you know, kept running into each other. And what was so profound is that both of their fathers, because of obviously, you know, the history of Germany and France, never allowed them to drink wines from the other region. Right, right. So Egon Mueller's father did not drink, you know, Alsace wines and, you know, similarly the other way. And those two bonded, uh, you know, over, you know, traveling to the U.S. together and meeting each other, and they're both their biggest fans. They both drink tons of each other's wines. So sitting there and talking to them and drinking some of their greatest wines and hearing, you know, Aegon 
um, who I absolutely love, you know, to be in his presence at dinners or, you know, I visited the estate. Um, he's just one of the most eloquent speakers, um, very soft-spoken that I've ever met. Seeing him go, you know, tit for tit with Jean Trimbach, you know, about what it was like growing up in Germany versus growing up in France, mm. what his dad said about his, you know, region, what the other dad said about his region was just truly, you know, one of the most memorable things I've ever seen. <laughs> That's fucking unbelievable. So, as as things begin to change, people get vaccinated, uh, uh, things are starting to open up again. Um, what's on the horizon for you and and source material and Riesling study for 2021? So, the big thing that I really want to do with Riesling study, we will do lots more, you know, dinners and lunches and and things like that but what i really want to do uh is have a you know music night with musicians you know where i can take over a club you know there's a couple of really cool jazz clubs in brooklyn that i that i love and say look you know give me the club for the night tell me what you need and i'll take care of curating the artist and i'm going to have all of you know the music and wine people come in and bring wine and we're just going to geek out on jazz, hip hop, you know, I'll, you know, sort of curate the music with live music. That's my dream. You know, I really want to do a music reasoning study event. And what I really want is I want the music people to come and drink wine. And I want the wine people to come and hear music. And there's a few people who, you know, are in the middle of that Venn diagram. But can a brother get an invite? <laughs> you, you, you will be on the VIP guest list. <laughs> No, but, I mean, but that's what you have to do to sell wine. Like, yeah. You have to like, you no, know, I you, mean, you bring true. people together and say, look, you know, we're going to do a night with three bands and you're going to come bring whatever you want, you know. And I tell people when I do these events, if you don't have a bottle, just come. I don't care. Wow. There's plenty. Wow. You know, and then some friends are like me. They'll bring five bottles, you know. Some, you know, person who may be working at a wine store or maybe, you know, an aspiring producer in the hip hop world, you know, will either go to a store and say, hey, you know, I need a bottle of Riesling. I've actually heard stories where people have gone to stores and said, I'm going to a Riesling study. What do I do? That's um, awesome. But I tell them all, like, don't stress out over it. Just come, you know, or, you know, if, if you can pick up a bottle at your local wine store, that's cool. If not, just come. So I really want to do... Um, a music Riesling study, and I've been really chomping at the bit to do it, and I had some great ideas. We did a, a small one at Public Records, uh, a kid, Skinny Pablo, who is turned into a Riesling fanatic. Yeah, I read an article about yeah. About, then you mentioned Skinny Pablo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's a really talented musician. He came out and debuted um, his last album uh, at Public Records, and we did a little Riesling study around it but with the pandemic we really weren't able to promote it so that's my goal you know to have like a music uh you know and wine night you know fully curated you know man i i could talk to her but i just want to stop right there because it was so beautiful because we just tied a bow around everything uh that you're about um and to me that's about people music and wine and, 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 and your little Venn diagram around that and bringing people together and having experiences and sharing with people. Um, although I should wrap it up, but I, I got to ask one question. Like, what's your favorite Mad Lib and Riesling pairing? 
That's a that's a softball. I guess. I'm, I'm giving it's a meatball. I'm throwing it's like an alley oop, man. I'm, it's a hang on the rimmer for you, man. Come on, Jahari Masamba. Okay, is Mad Lib and Cream Riggins. I know yeah, yeah. jazz album. Yeah, and Mad Lib knows more about jazz than any person I've ever met. And most people don't know he plays about ten instruments. I know because his father was a jazz musician. Correct, and his uncle as well. If you look at the album, you will notice that they are all wine titles. And my favorite song on the album happens to be called Riesling for Robert. So, <laughs> Riesling for Robert and Keller G-Max is my favorite pairing. Mic drop of my podcast to date. Robert, thank you so much for coming on here. Thank you for sharing these incredible fucking wines. Thank you for just just sharing your your heart your passion for german wines and 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 schooling people and like i love that you're an expert who doesn't give a fuck that you're an expert like i it's just it's just about the love for you so um tell people where they can find you and how they can be a part of what you're doing so soil pimp on instagram sourcematerialwine.com those are the two easiest places to find me thank you MJ, this has been really wonderful. Well, it's really been an honor. Seriously, like it's really been an honor. And I just want to say until the next time, everybody out there listening, um, cheers to the Mavericks. That's you, philosopher. That's you, deep thinker. And I'm going to change it. And to the Riesling drinkers, cheers. cheers. This is MJ. I'm out. Peace. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list. 